COP26 may be over, but the conversation has only just begun. And for this podcast, I'll be inviting the stakeholders, firms and organisations that innovate, inspire and encourage small sustainable steps to drive a positive legacy on the road to 2030. Hello and welcome to the Herald's Climate Conversations podcast, episode four, in association with Epson. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Mike Robinson, Chief Executive of the Royal Scottish Geographical Society. And I've known Mike for a few years now, and it's great to see him again uh, face-to-face, albeit virtually. Um, So, Mike, um, you've been in this space for quite a number of years now. Um, Could you give the the audience a bit of a flavour of how you got into um, your current role right now and, I guess, some of the future aspirations for the Royal Scottish Geographical Society? Hi, Mark. Thanks very much for that. Um, Yeah, sure. Um, I've been involved in... um, environment climate change issues for probably the last 25 years or so um, in a variety of different landscapes both through working for charities and other organizations but also quite a lot of voluntary positions too so I'm a big fan of uh, joined up thinking so I tend to get I'm not very good at saying uh, no either so I tend to get involved in an awful lot of different uh, issues across many many sectors and uh, this job actually at the Geographical Society uh, was a perfect way to bring all that together, actually. Yeah, no, and I think that one of the things in the climate piece, I think that really came out of COP26, Mike, was about that joined up thinking and collaboration across sectors. And I suppose that's probably not a bad place to to kick us off, given you know both of us being based in Scotland. And I don't know if you want to give us a bit of a flavour about your reflections on COP, but then also what you attended and some kind of insights and takeaways that you took from the conference. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I mean, COP itself, um, it's probably what it was. You know, it's a it's a big international bureaucratic get together. Um, it's it's a very sort of cumbersome beast. It's difficult not to get excited about what might come from it, because, of course, in theory, you know, a really big and bold pronouncement might actually sort of set us all in a different direction. And of course, we all wanted that. But um but the reality is it is a negotiation. It's been a negotiation between all the world's governments. So it's always, there's always compromise there. I think what came out of COP for me was that actually scientific opinion has been well ahead of politicians on this for a number of years. You know, we've known about climate change since 1979 pretty definitely. And we've been very, very slow to respond up until now. Um, so science has got frustrated. Science has just sort of, some scientists have just got louder and louder and louder in what they've had to say because they think people aren't listening. And, um, and to some degree, they're right. But um, but what's actually happening is we're not doing the other things you need to do to make something change. So the science alone clearly isn't enough. Um, I think what was interesting about Glasgow's COP was it felt that public opinion was also way ahead of the political mood as well. Um, there are undoubtedly nations who are much, much slower on this. Um, and much more reluctant to be involved, usually the ones with lots of oil and lots of coal. But um, but generally, I think there was a sort of sense that, yeah, the political establishment is catching up with public opinion and they've still got a long way to go. I think for Scotland, what interesting the, the interesting aspect of that for COP for me was that Scotland is a leader in this. It's not doing enough. Nobody is. Um, somebody once described it as the fastest snail in a race, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> but um, but Scotland is ahead of the curve, and actually we have achieved quite a lot. I think it's very easy to dismiss everybody's contributions, but that's not helpful. If people are making strides, you've got to stop and notice that and reward that and, and reflect that. In If for no other reason than to embolden and encourage and inspire the next group of people to do the next step. You know, we're all on a journey here. Climate change is a journey towards net zero and beyond if you live in the West. and you know, COP was one step on that journey. Scotland is at a position on that journey. A lot of countries um, are are behind us. Um, very probably none in front, to be truthful. So we've actually got an awful lot of information to share and examples to to share and knowledge and expertise and experience that I want the rest of the world to wake up to as well. So I think one of the big outcomes for COP for me was that the global recognition of Scotland's leadership in this arena, and that's got to be good. For all of us, I think. No, absolutely, Mike. And I was just kind of something you mentioned there about the leadership piece was interesting because 
over the last kind of couple of years at Scotland is, you know, we've done a lot of work looking at the role of climate technologies. And in actual fact, that's certainly a leader where Scotland can absolutely go to the forefront. But it was interesting, another day there, there was a report kind of came out saying, actually, you know, Scotland aren't going far enough when it comes to our targets. We're behind the curve. You know, we're probably not going to meet the 2030 if we keep on the trajectory we're at. Now, if we are one of the better ones, right, as, as you say, what does that say for the rest of the globe there? And is there an element of, you touched upon some of the countries who were perhaps not, let's say, not very present at COP26. Is, I mean, is that a challenge that will ever overcome in the sense that, you know, Scotland and Sweden and, you know, you know smaller countries who are kind of taking quite good strides, I guess the question is, will it matter on, on the grand scale if, if others don't get on this on this brigade? Absolutely. There's an interesting point here that I often hear there are many forms of scepticism and, uh, and cynicism around climate change. And anyone who's involved in it and is passionate about it and is trying to help make things happen, it undoubtedly goes through very significant periods of frustration. But actually, um, it is really important that um, both everybody, everybody tries to do what they can. And I think the issue of um, we're only 1%, 2%, whatever, I hear that in all sorts of arenas. I've heard that from local authorities saying, well, we're only 2% of local emissions. But that's missing a massive point. The first point is actually you're still responsible for an amount of this. And actually your influence goes way beyond that 1% or 2%, way beyond. So... Let's get our own house in order. Let's make sure that we're doing everything we can. Yes, we haven't done enough. Nobody has, or we would have solved this by now. There's still lots and lots to do. But let's get behind it. Let's sort out what those things are and start actually making them happen. But you're right. There is an element there of if we did everything perfectly in Scotland and nobody else bothered, we'd still fail. We'd still fail. So... Actually, one of the other bits out of COP that I think is really interesting and the reason it's really important that there is that recognition internationally about the leadership coming from Scotland is that there are real opportunities to move others. And one of the things that keeps me optimistic in this space is the principle of tipping points, which are used in climate change to talk negatively about scientific tipping points or climate will plunge into a more unmanageable and more runaway process, more runaway system. But actually, there are positive tipping points, too. And I think you'll see from the school strikes, the public momentum, the, the, you know, even consumer behaviours, there are positive tipping points where we are starting to see the momentum move very strongly in a very specific direction. And I think one point about all of this is it's fairly evident if all of the world's governments are coming together every single year to talk about how they're committing to climate change, everyone's on this journey. Everybody is on the same uh, trajectory. So if we're ahead of that curve, we need to help guide them. And Scotland's really well placed to do that because we have lots of international allegiances and friendships. The more progressive nations like Scandinavia, some of the ones you've mentioned, California, Morocco, Egypt, you know, all of these sorts of countries, even the EU up to a point, there's a lot of potential to build that sort of progressive alliance and new friendships and help share ideas and almost challenge each other to sort of lead from the front. But possibly even more importantly, if you look at the Scottish diaspora, it's in places like New Zealand and Australia and Canada and the US. And these are the countries that are really, really struggling to engage. And I've already found through our own connections through the International Geographical Community that there's a real opportunity there for Scotland to use it's friendships and alliances with these less, you know, forward thinking states at the moment to help them wake up more quickly because they're suddenly going to wake up and realize how far behind the curve they are. And actually, our influence in places like Canada and the US and New Zealand and Australia is really, really good. So I think not only should we be doing what we can at home, we, we need to keep an eye on the fact that that in itself isn't enough and use those relationships that we have to build alliances to help others get on board too. 
Absolutely, Mike, and I think that's a really good point. It's something we've probably not touched upon yet on the podcast is that collaboration with foreign nations as well, you know, and even looking at, you know, particularly, you know, in the tech sector, for example, you know, how can we export some of the fantastic technologies developed in Scotland as well to the places across the globe? And as you say, you know, Scotland, we've had a rich history diaspora movement over the years, you know, you know, a Scot in every kind of corner of the globe and all that as well. So I think that's a really interesting point because I think what does concern a lot of kind of passionate activists, you know, such as yourself and, and others is, yes, you know, I think maybe we, we can meet our targets by you know, 2030, 2045, but is there the same confidence elsewhere? Probably not. So uh, I think that's a, a really interesting point, Mike. I want to come on to some of the work that the Geographical Society have been doing, Mike, because I know you know, pre-COP there was some great kind of media coverage, there's some really interesting stuff, some films you guys released as well, the move to Perth, and then also the Climate Solutions Accelerator Programme, which is fantastic. I've completed that myself. Um, <laughs> so I wondered if you could kind of touch upon a few of those areas and what's in the pipeline for the next kind of few years. Yeah, sure. So um, if, if I may, I'll start with the film then that we've made, because it sort of lends itself to what we were just talking about. We realised um, that one of the issues, one of the reasons that countries come to COP and don't commit more to support you know, direct action in different arenas is that they don't have the popular support at home. And so it takes a very bold politician to come and do something that they think they'll be criticised for the minute they land back home again. And actually, the best example is Obama. You know, you look at Obama in the Paris Agreement. He signed a presidential decree. It had no real weight in America, with, in, in the legislative system. And as soon as he left office, it was reversed instantly. And there was nothing he could do about that because it wasn't a real commitment. It wasn't. It didn't have the weight of the political establishment in the States behind it. Um, and in fact, it was almost done as a bit of a sort of almost recognition of the fact that he didn't have any of the weight of the political establishment behind it. So it failed. The difference in Scotland is that, and I think it's largely because of uh, the civil society pressure um, around this issue that came out of the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition. And that pressure led to cross-party support for a Climate Change Act with strict targets. In the 2019 sort of reiteration of the climate emissions targets, the, the bill that was pushed through the parliament in 2019, the, all the parties pushed for higher targets again. So the set of targets we have now in Scotland, every party signed up to other than one. And that was the Green Party because they wanted it to go further. <laughs> well, the difference in Scotland is that we have cross-party support. We've got public momentum and public concern behind this. And so one of the lessons of all of this and, and picking up on what we were saying before is if campaigners in different countries want to see more happen at COP, they've got to do the work at home to build the confidence or pressure their politicians to feel that when they come to COP, they've got to make greater pronouncements. I think you'll find Australia is a great example, probably one of the worst performing countries on climate change. No real commitment from the political establishment in Australia at the moment. But I actually suspect that's going to become their downfall. There is a huge wave of concern in the other direction. They're seeing direct impacts of climate change year on year. And I think it actually is something that's going to cause a very significant rift there. So I think that all political parties need to wake up to their responsibilities around this. It doesn't matter what your politics are. It really shouldn't make any difference. This impacts everybody. And one of the things actually we did within the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition back in the early days, 2006-07, was we persuaded all of the religious leaders in Scotland to come together and do a joint press announcement. So we had the cardinal, the, an imam, and the moderator of the Church of Scotland. And by coming together and seeing beyond their religious differences and making a joint pronouncement, it made politicians realise that there's no point in hiding behind party lines and it brought people around the table much more. So this issue about collaboration is not just international, it's across sectors nationally as well. And that's the thing that other countries need to do more of. And actually we have, again, shown leadership there. So one of the things that we did for COP was we um, were working with a couple of filmmakers who've tried to sort of document the process of how that popular support came about, how the 2009 Act came about, and importantly, what the impact, what has been the 
um, you know, the ongoing impact of that act, you know, because it isn't just about legislation, because legislation on its own is useless. It doesn't necessarily mean very much. And actually, it isn't always delivered. So there's a huge amount more to do. At every single stage, there's always more to do. So having got the act through the parliament, the next issue was delivering against it. And what this film does beautifully is it starts to roll out that impact. It shows you what's going on in different industries, different sectors, in the in energy, in whiskey, in peatland management, in communities. And it just starts to just unpick, well, what happened, you know? So and that is actually very heartening because there's an awful lot of really good people all over the place trying to do really good things. And in some cases, delivering really great things. And I think the thing we haven't got right yet is we're not recognizing that enough and we're not giving them enough traction, enough agency. And one of the things the Act did really, really well was that it meant that anybody in any organization across any sector could point to a piece of legislation, a government commitment to achieve a set of targets. And it gave them more of a mandate to help, to do more, to deliver more within their own organizations. And that issue of agency is really, really important. Time and again, I see situations where people think they can't make a difference, so they don't try. Or manage it, they think the manager will tell them it's nonsense and they're not going to get any, any support, so they don't do it. And so it's really, really important that we inspire people and remind people that actually change is happening. I think it's inevitable. It's just the timescale that's not. And I think we need to accelerate the timescale. So that's where the real pressure is. But there's real opportunity in that, in giving people that agency, giving people permission to make change. So we've tried to, it sounds very grand, tried to capture that in a film. We've made a one-hour documentary, which we're um, offering to any community and any school that wants to screen it. There's quite a lot of screenings going on in schools at the moment. And it does that delicate thing about trying to present an honest portrayal of where we are, what we're doing, what we've done well, what's not gone so well, and where we think it's all headed. So that, that film's a really important uh, vehicle for us. And actually, we're hoping, uh, ironically, one of the few overseas screenings I think is likely is Australia. Um, <laughs> for, and, and, you know, not, not accidentally, but, you know, we want to inspire people to actually just get behind these issues and say, actually, it does work. It, we can do this. And, and I think that's really critical. I think I think so, Mike, as well. And it's 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 really interesting as well because you know having the kind of story and bringing it to light as well in a in a kind of film environment. I think there's something really powerful about that as well. And you mentioned about schools as well. And you know when I come on, I want to come on to the the climate solutions accelerator because I think what that also does, and probably in a similar way to the film, will do is it brings it to life to those who possibly haven't quite considered, you know, their role in the kind of climate change debate or their organisational's role as well. And actually, as you say, this is about everyone taking responsibility. It's not a case of saying, well, you know, we're not drilling oil out the ground or we're not flying planes, so we're not really the problem, you know. It's about getting a more mainstream conversation. And I think those vehicles that you can describe there are really key to doing so. And I think for me, that with the Climate Solutions Accelerator, that was another thing there as well, that it doesn't matter what stage of the kind of climate education journey you're on, there's something there for everyone. I think, would you agree that that's something that we possibly need to ramp up and get more people engaged and get more involvement from communities and citizens who possibly aren't as engaged as, as they, they could or should be? <coughs> Yeah, absolutely, Mark. Um, we would like everybody to do to do the qualification that we've produced, but we've produced the qualification for a reason, and that is that we've realised that actually in a lot of conversations, a lot of networks I've been involved in, I was involved in the 2020 group, which is a sort of business leaders body set up by the First Minister, and actually uh, in all of these different situations, you just realise that people don't actually talk about this that much day to day, it's difficult, a subject to talk about. It feels miserable and depressing as well. So it's also quite disengaging. Um, but actually, we've really got to sort of get people on board with what needs to be done to help them pick their way through all the noise. Uh, every time anybody suggests there's a solution, someone else will tell you why it isn't. So you've got to help people know that you have certainty. Nobody's going to invest in something if they if they don't believe it's really the future. You know, So you've got to help explain no we do need this we do need that we know we need that let's get on with it you know 
But I think that issue about moving away from blame is really important. Um, I've noticed a lot of businesses, organizations are holding themselves back. They won't tell you what they're doing on sustainability and climate change because they think they're going to be targeted for what they're not doing or they will simply be dismissed as greenwash. And we've got to be really careful because where people are doing good things, we should make more of that. We need to bring that to the fore. We need to embolden the ones that aren't. We need to get more people doing it. We need to roll it out. And you're not going to do that by just pointing fingers and, and blaming people. So I, I want to win the war, you know. So we've got to win the majority. We've got to get people around this issue in a way that allows them to engage, feels meaningful, and also I think helps give them quickly gets them up to speed with the critical things you need to know the climate solutions is trying to do that it's a safe space to come together it's not trying to be judgmental it's trying to be factual it's trying to be straightforward we're trying to tell you what we think you need to know rather than what i might like to tell you i had quite an interesting conversation with a guy once and i'm not going to mention names or anything but they were saying that they didn't like some of the climate change material that was out there because it didn't explain that some of the heat that was generated through climate change was through um, agitated molecules in the atmosphere. And I'm like, oh, my God, that nobody cares. Um, don't get me wrong. There are some people that care, but it's, it's a level of detail that is not what is needed in order to understand this. So what we've tried to do is focus it in on as little as possible you need to understand, which is two key numbers. And, and then just trust the science. The science is not really in dispute. There is no great dispute in the science anymore. The only issue is how quickly this might or might not you know, move forward at pace and how long we've got whilst we still have a choice in how we, how we deal with it. Um, and I don't mean we have a choice in dealing with it or not dealing with it. I mean, yeah. we have a choice in which bits of which things we do most quickly. Um, and I think it's really important, though, that we create these sort of safe spaces where people aren't being embarrassed or or blamed or humiliated they're just able to talk it through understand the issue in their own way and then what we do do is encourage and challenge them to come up with their own ideas about how they're going to help deliver these particular solutions yeah i think i think it's really refreshing as well mike that you know someone like yourself who has been in this space for 25 years is kind of looking at bringing in more people and saying look you know let's not have the blame culture let's not look at the greenwashing aspect because I think one of the challenges is and particularly in Scotland is there are a number of sectors you know whether it's the kind of agricultural sector the you know farming you know oil and gas aviation who maybe don't feel as inclusive and as part of the debate as, as others you know who have got something to bring to the table to actually solve it but again you know and something I always go back to if we don't bring these types of businesses and organizations on board, you know, will we ever get to our targets? And, you know, what are kind of some of the key mechanisms that you would kind of, I guess, offer people in saying, how do we get more of these people on board? And how do we create a more kind of warm and fertile environment to get them more involved and engaged as well? I mean, I, I think the first thing is you've got to recognise there's an awful lot of people out there that want to do the right thing, but aren't always sure what to do. And or, or as I said earlier, not necessarily sure they have the permission to do it. So what we're trying to do is help unlock that enthusiasm and willingness and concern. I, I think most people are anxious about this. They're just not quite sure where to start and also not sure they can make a difference. But actually, one of the things we've got to realise is we sort of need everybody to play this and get on board otherwise it isn't going to work and agriculture is actually a really interesting case in point i, I chaired an inquiry with the national farmers union called farming 1.5 and one of the big obstacles with agriculture and farming is that there appeared to be this very one-dimensional conversation around meat and that in itself was inhibiting the conversation because farmers didn't really want to talk about reducing livestock and some people felt that that was the only thing they needed to do. But the reality is with farming and agriculture is we, there's, there's an awful lot of things that they can do and need to do if Scotland is going to meet its climate targets. We can't do it without the land sector and the agricultural sector. And actually, it's not just about meat. Meat's one part of that, although my argument is that most of that will be picked up by consumer demand changes 
and it isn't necessarily down to producers to, to affect that. There are efficiencies that they can bring in in that production. And there's no point making all those efficiencies if we then just import loads of stuff that hasn't got any of the same rules applied to it. So that there is, it's a much more nuanced and difficult conversation than people think. But actually, there's 50% of all nitrogen used in this country is wasted. And it, it's just a, that's just common sense. It's crazy. It's causing eutrophication of water systems. It's, it's a pollutant. It's a greenhouse gas. Why are we doing that? Let's just stop wasting nitrogen and let's start looking at soil regeneration and looking at new systems like agroforestry and promoting a bit more of the organics and all these sorts of things. There's a range of things that we can do in agriculture, one part of which is meat. And we got mired in this one dimensional conversation, combative conversation around meat that didn't go anywhere. And I think it's really important that we actually you know, a lot of farmers want to do the right thing and already do, in some cases, do a huge amount around biodiversity and stuff like that. We need to encourage them again, in, encourage those behaviours, help support those behaviours and and treat them as champions of change and not victims of change. And I think farming is a great example for that. But that's true of several, several other sectors, to be truthful. Yeah, no, absolutely, Mike. Well, I mean, that's a really interesting point you mentioned there about the kind of consumer demand and the producers, you know? So, okay, businesses and producers can make those efficiency gains and stuff stuff like that that you mentioned, but will the, will the kind of real change come from basic behavioural change as well? Because, you know, things like the 5P plastic bag or things like that, I mean, do government need to do more in the sense of actually forcing people to change or do we think that people are naturally going to change through better education and becoming more informed i mean where do you kind of stand on that kind of debate and uh, and insights there <laughs> it's, i actually see it annoyingly see it as this big system um and politicians are only part of that system i think it's very easy to over emphasize what we expect or over over anticipate what we can expect from politicians in large part with cop the countries that didn't do what we might have wished they would are the ones that didn't feel they had the political support to do so so unfortunately what that means is if you really believe in this stuff you've got to give them the political space now sometimes that's sort of you know moaning at them that they're not doing more and demanding that they take this issue more seriously but actually, it's also got to be much more robust and more rounded than that. It's got to be much more consistent than that. And politicians are going to do it if they think that's what everybody wants them to do. So it's a long way to go around it. But actually, if you can convince them that this is you're not just one person standing one side of a fence shouting at them, you actually represent a, a swathe of opinion that says, why on earth haven't you done this? And then you're far more likely to get political change. But it's not the only sort of change. You know, there are, there's huge changes going on in, in the investment community at the moment. There's an, I think there's an anxiety there because there's a, a lack of certainty about um, where, where you can invest long term that isn't risky. It's an incredibly risk averse community, particularly pensions uh, funds and things. And they, they didn't invest in onshore wind when there was a 25 year feed in tariff because they thought it was too risky. Um, you know, so they were never going to invest in, in you know, uh, ocean and, and uh, wave technology or anything like that, because it was way off the scale of risk if they couldn't, if they thought something with a guaranteed 25 year income was risky. So, but what's happening is that risk, you know, pattern in investment has just changed overnight almost as far as some of them are concerned. You know, coal is pretty much uninvestable and has been for the last couple of years oil and gas are looking like they're going to go the same way but where do they invest and there's all this pressure to disinvest there's a lot of disinvested funds internationally the problem is at the moment there's not a lot of education and not a lot of sense in the way that's being used so people are pointing it at tree planting in africa or i mean the land price in scotland has gone through the roof for tree planting but tree planting really if you know your stuff is is a last resort not a first resort and so again there's a real need to just get people up to speed quickly with what actually is a meaningful intervention how are you going to go about actually delivering some of this stuff and when what's not going to work there's far too many companies have sort of queued up to sign the net zero pledge by 2030 2035 2040 with no idea how they're going to get there i was talking to one the other day and they 55 percent of their plan of how they're going to meet net zero by 2030 is to plant trees 
And you're like, oh, blimey, you and everybody else. That's not going to work. You know, we can't plant enough trees to offset all of this carbon. It's got to begin with a meaningful intervention into the way that you use greenhouse gases and then work outwards from there. Yeah, no, absolutely, Mike. And it's funny, but at Scotland is we're just kind of looking at our own sort of net zero strategy and stuff and looking at different, you know, things around transport, event, dietary. Tree planting is actually something we have kind of looked into and stuff like that. But I think, you know, it can't, as you say, just be, you know, a part of the the full jigsaw. It has to just be a component uh, and have a kind of last resort component. It's really interesting on the kind of economic piece there as well. And I was reading a really interesting article, I think it was yesterday, but it was around the Scottish budget, the upcoming budget. And it was kind of saying that, you know, a lot of people see the economic piece and environment piece clashing. And this is something I've always found quite fascinating because to me, actually, they don't need to clash. There is a lot of, I mean, in some ways, you know, the economy and environment, you can't disentangle them, you know, because they are so interdependent on each other. And I don't know if you'll agree with this, but is there a way that we actually we can have a better economy through sustainable economic growth, through better use of well-being as well, so that we don't have to look at you know degrowth or deinvestment. We can just look at you know more sustainable investment actually. Or do we actually need to do a bit of both in the sense that you know look at areas that we have to degrow and areas where we need to grow as well? I mean, of course, there are areas where we want to see that aspect of our society or industry or whatever to to grow and we've got other areas where that absolutely has to shrink um in its current form if it can find new ways to do things then it doesn't need to a great example is the cement industry which is sitting on its hands waiting for carbon capture and storage to be proven to work and then all of a sudden it might do something But up until then, it's not really doing anything. It's sort of hoping that'll come along and solve all its problems. But actually, cement is 7% of global emissions. It's a very heat-intensive process to create um, Portland cement. And there are alternatives, but they've just not been invested in. And um, one of the most exciting things we got involved in before COP was to create a a geopolymer cement project with a, a researcher from Belfast. And uh, she's created this cement out of quarry waste uh, dust, basically, and another one out of the waste from the water industry, which I think is basically, it's called water cake, but I think that's poo, basically. Um, And she's turning this into really high quality, high grade cement. One of the things that's inhibiting its use um, is not just the fact there's a lack of research and innovation around this space, but that every country in the world, apart from Australia, the cement test to say whether it's strong enough, it's judged on what percentage of Portland cement it has in it. In Australia, it's judged on how strong it is. And that issue around Portland cement is a very heat intensive process. That's why it's very high carbon. It's the most traded commodity in the world after water. 7% of emissions. And there are alternatives that exist that are 95% more efficient. But we're not using them. And that that to me is madness. And those are the things we need to just get on and sort out right away. I mean, just you don't even have to stop building buildings. You just have to switch the type of cement. And you might have sh- shaved 6% of global emissions. That's breathtaking, you know? Yeah, and no. that's the side of things where you're just like, where on earth is the, why are we not more joined up? It just comes back to that idea of being joined up again. Yeah, no, it does, Mike. And I think what you mentioned there is interesting because that, to me and you, that is a quick win. That is something you can easily do pretty quickly. I think, you know, we need to be mindful that in the kind of climate agenda as a whole, there are areas that are quick wins and there are areas that are more kind of longer term and strategic goals that we kind of need to kind of gradually do over time. But I think things like that, that is probably something whereby in the next few years, we, we really need to highlight those quick wins because 2030 is not a million miles away. And what, what, can, what else would you like to see around the quick wins? Like how do we harness some of those quick wins before we let it get to 2045? I mean, there's uh, I mean, there's some obvious ones. I mean, you know, some of them are so obvious, it's ridiculous to have to keep saying these after 20 years. But um, insulating our homes properly would be an obvious start point. Um, you know, using more forms of transport. We over rely on the car and underestimate the cost of the car. Um, and actually, the thing we forget about the car, it's actually becoming a justice issue because actually half the population don't drive. And what we're doing is we're catering more and more and more to a smaller and smaller and smaller group of drivers and then wondering why everything gets congested and we can't get around the place. 
we've got to just be a bit more creative and a bit more clear about some of these things. And there are real opportunities there. I, I still think, you know, train travel in Scotland is, is slower than it should be. I remember I once went on the train to the Alps and I had this wonderful journey back to Paris, which took like an hour and a half. Paris to London was like an hour and a half, two hours. London to Edinburgh was four and a half hours. And then I had to change and come to Perth. And uh, that was like an hour's wait and then about an hour and 20 on the train. You're like, what is going on? The closer I'm getting home, the further it's getting away is what it felt like. There are so many things that we could do better than we are. Um, we're still subsidising some of the wrong stuff. Electric vehicles we need. But, uh, people talk about the cost of electric vehicles being high at the moment. A lot of innovative technologies are high in the first instance. Yeah. Onshore wind was quite high when it first started. It's now the cheapest form of electricity production. Solar panels used to be very expensive. They've come down in price enormously over the last 15, 20 years. Of course, these technologies tend to be quite high in the first instance, but they're going to become normal. They're going to become the only way you can do this. So electric vehicles, electric buses, electric transport where we can, that's why the rail network has been electrified in most cases in Scotland, but certainly in Central Belt. This is the future and we've got to get onto that. And But we've also got to be a bit more willing to accept some of this change. I still think permission is one of the things that we need to grant more than anything else. You know, if we keep resisting every single form of change, you know, we know we need to stop climate change, but I I still like doing this and I still like driving and parking outside my shop and, you know, all of these sorts of things. And you're like, we, you know, some moderation perhaps or yeah. try different ways of doing things, you know. Yeah. And actually, there are all it's not just sort of short, quick wins. It's also the sort of win win of actually some of these things are more sociable. You know, they, they have other benefits, other values around this, too. That, that make an enormous difference to the way that we live. The problem with economics is it's it's not even the whole of economics. We we measure growth and wealth very narrowly indeed, of course, through GDP. Um, GDP is a ridiculous measure. We all know that. Simon Kuznets, that invented GDP, thought it was not a good enough measure of really what we use it for. So we're still deciding whether we're wealthy or not on the price of, I, I think it's moved on a bit but it used to be things like the price of candles and nonsense like that. You know what? You, we were never counting everything anyway. And the problem is that we weren't counting the environment at all. So there is no conflict, as you started asking earlier, between the economy and the environment. Really, the only conflict is that we don't bother counting damage. If we destroy something to create something and sell what we've created for a hundred pounds, then we've created a hundred pounds. But we've destroyed something in the process, and but nobody cares. Yeah. And no, no, we don't make companies pay for that. We don't make organisations pay for that. So it doesn't appear. So our our economics is a sort of willful, you know, ignore, ignorance of the true cost by just focusing on this little bit in the middle. And I think the thing that's going to change over time, and I think it's already changing, is people are starting to realise that they can't just measure the little narrow bit in the middle and pretend the other bit doesn't exist. And as soon as you accept that that other bit exists, you would change the way you do everything. Yeah. And it's not going to come down to just a nice, you know, nice behavior because you suddenly realize that by digging a massive hole to create that mound, you've still got a massive hole and now you've got to pay for it. It's much more than that. It's also that this isn't, this isn't just a, oh, maybe I should fill the hole in. We're getting to a point where you're going to be fined if you don't fill the hole in and sent to jail if you refuse to do it beyond that. You know, the, we're not that far away from financial and legal penalties following this need because the need to tackle climate change is so absolute. It's got to be backed up. And I think the public momentum that we have will force these things to happen. I think so, Mike, and I think that kind of carbon pricing piece is, is really interesting. There's a lot of discussion around carbon border tax as well, which is quite interesting with the oil and gas piece, you know, because it's all very well shutting down oil and gas if you're importing it from China and India as well. So um, there's there's a, there's a kind of debate going on there. The transport piece was one that was really interesting, and over the years I've done quite a bit of work around mobility as a service, and essentially what Mass looks at is getting people off the roads and actually changing their behaviours around transport. So whether that is, you know, train usage, bus usage, active travel, obviously has grown kind of arms and legs over the last few years. But unfortunately, I think the pandemic has, if there's one thing, or has not just one thing, but certainly 
the pandemic has really kind of put a halt to a lot of the good work there in terms of people now, unfortunately, don't feel kind of comfortable or safe or whatever it may be going on a train or bus. And I think, you know, transport is one of the few areas that's got a massive upward trajectory of CO2 as well. You know, so that is quite a worry for me. And I think, unfortunately, we keep seeing EVs as a silver bullet here, which they won't be. Um, and I'm just wondering, on your kind of perspective there, how do we instill more confidence in people getting using other forms of transport? Because as you say, it can be more sociable. You can do work on the train, you know, you can have beautiful journeys, you know, wherever it may be, particularly in Scotland. So how do we instill that confidence again and actually start to look at incentivising people to possibly take public transport and active travel? I think that's another key part of the jigsaw here as well. I totally agree. I mean, the problem, I mean, COVID has absolutely had an impact and it's made us all more nervous of other people. So anything where mass transit is, is now more problematic. I don't think we'd got it very right before, to be honest. Um, and I think we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. The one positive for COVID, I suppose, is I hope that people have really woken up to walking and cycling as activities that they that you know they benefit from that give them mental health uh, benefits as well as physical health benefits and are actually ways of getting around and I, I hope that that's been a sort of slight counter to the drift away from public transport but I think one of the things you're pointing to there transport is, is famously bad at joining itself together I and mean, you know we talk about joined up thinking I, I'm thinking joined up thinking across government industry academia pub, you know NGO community public sector etc communities we're not even managing to join up the transport sector very well. Um, I mean, aviation doesn't talk to rail, doesn't talk to roads, doesn't talk to public, you know, active travel. And and But the trouble with active travel on its own is, is at the moment it's only 3% of travel. So it's, yes, we absolutely need to drive more active travel. We need to get people walking and cycling and all those other things and using the bus and all that sort of stuff. But if that's only, you know, 10%, 3% of travel, you're ignoring the other 90%. And we can't do that. We've got to tackle all of it. So electric vehicles do have their place. Electric trains have their place. But it's about, it's really just about being a bit more intelligent in the way that we tackle this. And a, a great example, I was at a government conference a few years back, and they were talking about a predicted third, again, increase in road traffic in the next 10 years. And the general sort of sense in the room was, oh, we need to build more roads. And my sense was, God, it's horrific driving at the moment. Why? Another third again. That's awful. This should be a signal to do things better. You know, I don't want to see another third again traffic on the road. God alive. You would never get moved around Glasgow at certain times <laughs> of day. You know, get, no, we need to find ways of getting people onto other forms of transport and, and incentivize that. But one of the things that you've touched on, one is we misrepresent the costs a lot, actually. I saw an environmentalist write a report recently, last two years ago, saying that um, she was traveling down to London and it was so expensive on the train she was forced to drive. And she promptly, utterly underestimated the cost of driving and overinflated the cost of the train and then got the timings wrong as well for the, the amount of time it would take to do these two different things. So there is a sort of psychological thing that we underestimate a journey when we're driving by us. I think it's a third and overestimate it by a third when we're on public transport. So there's a bit of psychology that we need to work around here. But the other thing I think we've got to do is sell it for the good that it does. And I don't just mean, you know, the, the, the helping save the planet type good. I actually do mean in terms of you know, the time that you get back, you know, I took my kids on holiday to France by train and we got on the train in Scotland and a minute you're on the train, you're on holiday. And I hadn't really anticipated that feeling, but it was like, way, and it was just, it was instantly just so much more relaxing. Um, and I just think it's understand, I've got to sell the positives, got to sell the good things that these sort of train travel, bus travel, all these things offer. You know, the, uh, rather than sort of focus on the negatives. But if we're going to be successful, we also need to tackle issues that are holding it back, some of the barriers. And I think you touched on safety, um, COVID safety, of course. But I think safety in public transport mm. is quite an important issue, actually, that I think is overlooked sometimes in the discussions. So I think we need to get better at that. And the one thing we absolutely do not need is tax cuts on in, uh, internal aviation in the UK. That's um, that's definitely the signal going in the wrong direction, I would suggest. 
I think as well, Mike, as well, it's a tricky one because, you know, so I, I live in Falkirk, right? Now, transport connections to Glasgow and Edinburgh and, you know, most of Scotland, actually, is fantastic, right? Great, great place to live in that sense. So, for, I've never drive now, really. Like, it, honestly, you can kind of count on what the hand the last kind of few times. So, because it's so interconnected, however, I am conscious, you know, some of the rural communities in Scotland, you know, go to the south of Scotland, Highlands and Islands, all of a sudden, the dynamics start shifting a bit as well. So, is there an element here again of that kind of rural piece as well that we need to make sure that no one's left behind and we also have inclusive growth in these regions as well not just servicing perth down to glasgow and edinburgh and you know whatnot we need to have the kind of areas around there as well not that i'm picking on perth mike <laughs> uh, no no you've you've um you've just scratched an itch there um no perth is appallingly connected by train other than to glasgow um uh, I mean, it's absolutely absurd that it takes an hour and 20 to get to Edinburgh. Um, so one of the reasons people don't get the train from Perth to Edinburgh is because it takes half that time to drive it. And it's because it goes all the way around the houses and it's a ridiculous service. So, But what it highlights is that we have prioritised getting to London more than we have getting to, say, Aberdeen. So places like Inverness, Aberdeen, Perth are appallingly served by train services at the moment. And it just... You, you have to want to go on a train, basically, to go to any of those places. I think the thing people don't understand sometimes is when you drive, it's just sort of dead time. It's wasted time. I, I know there's things you can do. You can chat on hands-free and all that sort of thing and listen to the radio. But but actually, we've made travel much more comfortable. And and I I get really frustrated at, the, at just, you know, not being able to read and do work and catch up on things and... You know, which I can do on public transport. The rural issue is interesting. I actually live in rural Perthshire, and um, and I'd, I think it can be overplayed that particular card. But it is different, of course, it is to Central Bell. We don't have you know a very regular train services. It's, it's as much the regularity in rural places as as it is the ease and convenience. Um, and I think yeah, of course, we could do an awful lot better than we currently do. It's not trying to impose one set of solutions on the whole country, because in Central Belt that that might work, but it's not going to work in Northern Highlands, you know, and nor should it, you know. I mean, the Central Belt you don't probably need to know how it integrates with ferry services, for instance, you know. But I think I mean COP was an interesting example, wasn't it? I know there was a lot, of, a bit of a stushy in in Glasgow because there's no single travel card, and then all of a sudden there was a single travel card for people. Yeah. At so guess what? It can be done. It needs the will and the energy and effort to do that. But yeah. just to remind people why it's not joined up, actually, I used to sit on a ScotRail advisory board and um, somebody was telling a story that when the ferry operators changed ownership from the bus operator, um, one or I can't remember which one it was, I can't remember if it was the train or the bus, but it suddenly would turn up before the ferry docked. So because they weren't the same company, they actually went out of their way to make it more difficult for people. So you're actually getting to a point where you're like, really? There is actually that level of small-mindedness still going on in the world. But, you know, it's not joined up, and, and somehow we need to make sure it is. And that's a big part of what we're trying to do is help convene conversations to allow people to have this stuff and safe spaces to talk across sectors, across areas, and also just to be a bit more creative and imaginative in the solutions that we bring. Don't just build more roads. Let's actually work out how do you actually get 30% of people more onto the trains. Yeah. No, 100%, Mike. And it's interesting, the single-use transport card has been a kind of bane of my life for several years now. Uh, so when I saw it, it really was quite interesting. But all I'll say is, you know, watch the space. I think the next couple of years could be interesting that. Hopefully we'll get to a place where that is more acceptable. We are a little bit closer to the wire in terms of timing, but I always like to kind of finish on the next kind of couple of years, what do we really need to do ahead of... 2030 because I mean you know as of in a few weeks we'll only be eight years away from that as well we, we touched upon some of the quick wins earlier on what are kind of your some what are kind of some of your aims and ambitions and um, and how do we get there as well the single most important thing and everybody needs to do this is a massive issue it affects every single aspect of our lives every single aspect of business and we'll continue to do so ever more so every year for the next forever so we need to get up to speed on this. We need people to understand the issue properly. And it is really, really a worry that people still aren't really taking it seriously in some cases or just don't really know their way around it. So 
the reason that we put a climate solutions qualification together is because we believe there's a massive need to help people quickly and easily get up to speed. I mean, our, the main course that you were talking about, the accelerator, only takes about 90 minutes. Yeah. It's the absolute bare minimum. Everybody should know about climate change. So we want that to be universal. And it's not because I want everybody to do the course because I help write it. It's because it's an essential step in getting everybody onto the same page. If we're not all pulling in the same direction, then we're pulling apart, even with the best will in the world. So we've got to get people more lined up. We've got to get people talking to each other across sectors. And we've got to get people lined up behind the solutions that work and helping make them happen. The other reason it's really important, I've been involved in this for a long time and I'm still optimistic. And the reason I'm still optimistic is I focus on what we can do more than I worry about what we can't and what we haven't. And that might make me um, small minded as well. I don't know. But I'm trying very hard to turn the thing into what is it that we can actually do? How can we affect this? How do we take this forward? And education does become a really important factor in that. I don't mean education for kids in school. That's fine. We should do that anyway. I mean education for managers and directors and board members. Because some of them are the ones that I have discovered don't really understand this issue very well. And we've really, really got to sort of demand that they do. It's too important to ignore. And I don't think any organisation that's hoping to still be around in 10 years' time can ignore this any longer. So I think everybody needs to get through some form of universal understanding on this. And I actually think we should be challenging boards and organisations and public bodies you need climate expertise at board level and you need to be giving agency and permission to all those people in your organization that are trying to do the right thing and ideally give them a budget as well and then it might actually happen yeah no absolutely mike and i think you know hopefully i think it does infuse me that we are getting there in certain areas as well and you know hopefully i'm going to do my best to keep flying the flag at scotland is and i know a few other members of the team are as well but mike thank you very much for your time today it's been a real pleasure as always and uh, i look forward to seeing you in the flesh again soon but in the meantime you know have a great rest of your week mike and no doubt catch up soon thank you mike thanks mark been a pleasure cheers, cheers mike thank you Climate Conversations is a Herald podcast sponsored by Epson. To find out more about their environmental vision, visit epson.co.uk slash about slash environment and take 20% off an annual subscription to the Herald with our exclusive podcast code. Enter HeraldPod 2021 at your checkout and access our award-winning journalism from your mobile, tablet and PC.